folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator, advisor, blog, and author of A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visupview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book and my other works at the Farm's official store, which can be found at thefarmpodcast.store. That is thefarmpodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. You get two additional full-length shows per month in the lowest tier. That's between three and four hours of bonus material, exclusive gifts, and content per month. And for all access patrons, you get our monthly Zoom party, as well as insights on ongoing investigations, solo State of the Union addresses, dispatches from all kinds of weird stuff I do around the country, and so much more. So definitely consider that uh, a thing that you want to look into, guys. <laughs> okay, so uh, in this outing today, it is just going to be me. Uh I always regret when you only are stuck with me on these shows, but hopefully I've got a, uh, a pretty good presentation here for you that uh, will be of some interest. So here we go. A few months ago, I saw a recent film that really blew me away. And this is a rarity, to be perfectly honest nowadays, at least in terms of myself, um, though it does kind of seem like the quality of films has maybe witnessed a slight uptick in recent years after vastly being surpassed by TV during uh, the early knots. So yeah, do a decent uh, take on one of them today. It's uh, the most recent adaptation of Nightmare Alley. Of course, I'm sure a lot of you people are familiar with that one who are listening to this. It is Guillermo del Toro's follow-up to The Shape of Water, a, uh, a movie that generated a lot of headlines, uh, to put it mildly, a couple of years ago. I'm sure a lot of you don't really need a lot of breakdown on who del Toro is or his career much, but um, as for myself, I mean, I've been a fan for years now. I actually saw Kronos as a preteen prior to uh, Blade Two coming out. Uh, the Devil's Backbone is what really made me fall in love with him, however, and um, that was solidified by the next two movies that he produced uh, in the early knots. That would be Hellboy and especially Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, the first, along with the sequel, are two of my favorite superhero movies to this day. And Pan remains one of my personal favorite films. Generally, I think Del Toro's Spanish language films, I Pan, Backbone, and Kronos are his best. Um, I thought Pacific Rim was a solid Japanese monster movie tribute kind of thing. I still haven't seen Crimson Peak. Uh, as for The Shape of Water, I found it to be profoundly overrated, to put it mildly. It was really the first one of his films I was massively disappointed by. I expected Pacific Rim to be kind of slight, honestly, but Water just seemed like he was trying way too hard to get... Uh, a contemporary classic it was widely held at at the time and uh, i did not see the combination of the magical realism and um yeah some of the stuff the politics implied as being especially great in this case so four years later he comes back with nightmare alley 
No doubt, this seemed like an odd choice to me for a director primarily known for his work in fantasy and horror to make his follow-up to his most celebrated film, a remake of a character-driven film noir from the mid-1940s. Point of fact, it's it's wholly in keeping with Del Toro's overture. In fact, maybe his most blatantly occultic film he's made since Pan's. Incidentally, it's probably his best film since then as well. Um, again, I haven't seen Crimson Peak yet, but it's certainly a stronger picture than Pacific Rim or The Shape of Water, and it's probably a little better than the second Hellboy movie, too, for my money. Um, I know that'll be a bit controversial there. It's a remarkable film on a lot of levels and ties into several themes that we've been exploring on the farm of late. And certainly there's much to be said about the source material in the original 1947 film as well. All right, guys, before we get going here, I do want to um, make a point out here right quick. Uh, this is going to be a spoilers heavy uh, podcast. I'm assuming that those of you listening to this are familiar with the movie, uh, actually both versions of the movie version. So if you have not seen them yet, uh, yeah, you're uh, going to have a lot of pretty much everything revealed to you. So keep that in mind. Um, also, too, I would suggest, you know, if you're even if you were not that curious and actually seeing the movies, it might be best to uh, have an ideal of uh, the plot line. So you'll know what I'm alluding to here at a few points. Another thing, too, is I'm going to assume doing this that a lot of you guys are aware of uh, mesmerism and its development and its uh, relations to modern day psychology and that kind of thing, especially psychoanalysis, which comes via hypnotism, which really grew out of mesmerism and then was later incorporated heavily into psychoanalysis and a lot of other branches of modern psychology. So, Again, if you're not familiar with this history, I strongly suggest that you go and brush up on it a bit so that when I do begin discussing some of these topics here in the second half, you've got some idea of what I'm getting at. Um, I just, you know, didn't really want to delve too deeply into this stuff this time around because I know for a lot of you listening to this, this is, um, you know, kind of uh, parapolitics slash occult politics 101, mesmerism, hypnotism, psychoanalysis, uh, but again, uh, you know, there's a lot of material out there if you're unfamiliar with these connections that you guys can dig up uh, to help you better prepare for this. I'm uh, more interested in trying to untangle some of the less well-known hidden history that this film represents. All of that is on tap for this outing. So let us start the show. <laughs>
So both versions of Nightmare Alley are adaptations of a 1946 novel by a fellow called William Lindsay Gresham. As with everyone connected to these nightmares, Gresham is an interesting figure. He apparently came up with the concept of what became Alley after fighting in the Spanish Civil War. Uh, it was uh, this was uh, of course the conflict in the mid 1930s in Spain, uh, which is in of itself kind of interesting. Uh, but anyway, the Spanish Civil War. It was Franco's forces versus the Republicans. There were a lot of Americans uh, who had ventured over there to uh, fight on the side of the Republicans. So that's interesting um, that he was a uh, part of that whole milieu. This is of course in kind of the build up to World War II, and some saw it as the. Uh, the first kind of struggle between fascism and the West. But regardless, uh, it was during this time that Gresham began to first notice carnivals, again, in a very interesting place in Spain. Initially, he was fascinated by what were known as quote-unquote geeks, uh, which had a very different uh, uh, condemnation back then, as it, uh, rather than what it does now. Uh, these were typically alcoholics of such an extreme nature that they could be seduced into taking Fox treatments before engaging in activities like biting the heads off of chickens and so forth that, um, you know, had a certain place in uh, circuses and things of that nature, uh, kind of an early shock rock kind of thing. So Gresham's interest in geeks is hardly surprising in light of the fact that he was himself a hardcore alcoholic. In seeking help for this, Gresham encountered two of the pillars that pull at Nightmare's protagonist, psychoanalysis and occultism. Originally, Gresham had looked to the former to deal with his addiction as he began to work on Nightmare Alley and its nonfiction follow-up, Monster of the Midway, also based on the circuses. He became increasingly fascinated by spiritualism and other strands of occultism, and he was initially infascinated, infatuated, by the Russian mystic P.D. Opensky, I believe, Gresham was exposed to a wide variety of spirituality throughout this whole era. Now, in 1942, he married a woman named Joy Davidman, who at the time was a Jewish atheist. They had two sons prior to Nightmare being published, but she eventually converted to Christianity primarily from the influence of one C.S. Lewis, Yes, the authors of the Chronicle of Narnia and all that good stuff. She had begun correspondence with this author, C.S. Lewis, during the 1950s. Now, Gresham eventually fell under Lewis's spell as well, but only for a time. Eventually, Joy left Gresham and married C.S. Lewis and remained his wife until her own death in 1960. Uh, it's kind of interesting. She wasn't really especially old at the time either. In fact, I believe Lewis was... Uh, quite a bit older than her, if I recall, but I'm uh, not 100% sure about that. So Lewis ultimately raised two of uh, the sons Davidman and Gresham, and that Davidman had with Gresham. Uh, Gresham. So that's, you know, really interesting there. Um, eventually, these experiences were adapted into um, a film, I believe it was called Shadowlands, by one of Gresham's sons going into his experiences being raised by C.S. Lewis. So there's this weird kind of connection um, to C.S. Lewis and even the Chronicles of Narnia and all of this as well, which is uh, rather bizarre. But again, it's uh, just sort of in keeping with the legacy of this interesting work. 
Anyway, Gershom also fell under the sway of uh, Scientology for a time. He discovered Dianetics not long after it was initially published. Uh, this would have been like around 1950, I think. At first, he was an enthusiastic supporter of the process. <clears throat> but uh, he quickly became disillusioned, given the extent he wrote about religious charlatans. One suspects Gresham eventually realized Hubbard uh, could have been a character out of Nightmare and... Um, <laughs> Really, I've got to wonder to some extent if L. Ron Hubbard himself was also a fan of Nightmare Alley. Um, there were definitely some cult leaders who found much to admire in the work, as we will get to here in just a moment. Uh, but when all was said and done, tarot seems to have been the one aspect of Wilbur that Grishman could not reject. Indeed, much of Nightmare Alley, the novel, is structured around tarot. Every chapter of the novel is linked to one of the 22 trumps in the standard tarot deck. Further, the tarot is a crucial plot point in both the book and the two films adaptations. Now, the various nightmares take a dim view of magic and mysticism, largely seeing them as a little more as confidence games. Tarot presented as the real deal. The magical nature of the cards is never questioned. Unlike all the other supernatural elements presented in the nightmares, this seems to reflect Gresham's own unwavering faith in the legitimacy of the cards, um, which again I find to be uh, very interesting. Um, I know, you know, just in general, in my own experiences with individuals who have looked at these kinds of things, the Terra is. Um, seen as a much purer form of divination uh, than almost anything else because it's kind of, you know, it's viewed as something that's coming internally uh, as opposed to something like a Ouija board, uh, which by contrast seems to really open people up, at least uh, as I've been told, some more external influences in that regard. But yeah, um, this is another sort of aspect about Nightmare that's uh, very accurate with Gresham and his uh, kind of reverence here for the tarot. This is, uh, you know, again, very in keeping, I would say, from you know, what people who are actually in these circles would uh, probably feel about some of these different techniques and so forth. Okay. So anyway, addiction also is a major theme that runs through every version of Nightmare. And this is hardly surprising, given that Gresham's own struggles with alcoholism. Despite his success, including a biography of Houdini that had been optioned for a musical, Gresham committed suicide in 1962 after decades of struggling with drink. He checked into the same room he'd actually written the first draft of Nightmare in and promptly overdosed on sleeping pills. So, yeah, he was a very haunted person to put it mildly booze is literally a character in the novel while both film versions frequently draw attention to the scale of addiction in uh, a lot of these circles around the carnivals and other aspects of society this is interesting because the more magically inclined see this kind of addiction as a form of possession and indeed Possession would be an apt description for some of the addiction that is displayed in all three versions of Nightmare. 
This is another way in which Nightmare subtly toys with the reality of the supernatural. I mean, while it's widely dismissed as a confidence game, many of the practitioners in the Carney circuit display classic signs of possession. The concept of addiction as a form of possession is even more pronounced than the 1947 version of Alley. It's interesting that the original adaptation dropped in 1947, obviously. Not only was that the year that the modern UFO era officially began with the Kenneth Arnold signing, it was also the year Aleister Crowley gave up the ghost. So that's quite synchronistic uh, for reasons that I'll get into in a moment. Um, but yeah, I don't think it's a coincidence that this work came out in uh 47 we sort of get into uh the greater influence it's had in some very interesting quarters uh but let me dwell on possession here for a moment longer before we move on so early in the 47 version of nightmare the geek is addressed in the film version, geeks are depicted as subhuman just so deranged by addiction that they're more beast than man the film opens, opens with the protagonist, Stanton Char Carlyle, being introduced to geekdom and concludes with his transformation into one. And this is pretty much paralleled in all of the versions of it. His fall, you know, even prior to that, is foreshadowed by Pete, uh, the husband of Xena, the uh, carnival fortune teller, uh, where Stanton gets his start at. Pete is, of course, another wretched alcoholic, uh, as we learn not long after Stanton signs up at that particular circus. So Pete confides to Stanton that Xena is the only thing that saved him from Geekton. This is not long before Pete sheds his mortal coil after consuming a bottle of uh, rubbing alcohol or wood rod. I can't remember, something like that. Uh, Stanton is actually who gave him the bottle by accident. Earlier, he had purchased a bottle of moonshine, setting the stage for his own downfall, that is Stanton to say. But instead of consuming at the time, he thinks he might be better used to pass it on to Pete in a bid to loosen his tongue. You see, at one point, Pete and Xena were major headlining acts. They had this elaborate code that had contributed to a famous stage show of mentalism. And uh, Pete was quite a good mentalist in his day. <laughs> so, Stanton uh, sees some real practicalities to that. By the way, in case you're wondering about mentalism, that uh, is essentially a kind of fortune-telling. Uh, if you've ever seen, oh, was it Crossing Over with Jonathan Edwards? I mean, even though that's kind of a communicate with the dead thing, essentially what Edwards is doing with that is mentalism. Uh, I'll get into this here a little bit more in the detail, but it was quite a big thing uh, during this era, prior to the, you know, towards the end of the Civil War, the American Civil War, all the way up through uh, the Second World War and a lot of these stage shows. And Pete and Zeno were excellent at it. They had been headliners at one point before Pete uh, came too unreliable because of his alcoholism. So... Stanton, though, uh, believes that he has what it takes. Of course, being a good mentalist, uh, a lot of it has to do with just being able to read people, which he has shown some uh, talents for. And now uh, he's been kind of hoping to maybe revive the act with Xena, as the, uh, with himself and Pete's role and Xena uh, doing it. So anyway, it's an interesting development there. 
it's also kind of fascinating with Pete's death as well. Again, it's supposedly an accident. Um, Stanton grubs the wrong alcohol, the wrong bottle of booze to give to him, though Xena later insists that Pete would have known the difference between moonshine and rubbing alcohol. So there's also kind of the possibility that uh, during this last encounter between Pete and Stanton, when they are um, uh, having a heart-to-heart -heart about mentalism and how it works, uh, that Pete was possibly deliberately attempting to commit suicide and uh, maybe deliberately passing on this knowledge. It's left all rather ambiguous. Regardless, it paves the way for Stanton to relaunch Xena's act with himself in the role formerly held by Pete. He had almost gotten Xena to do it while Pete was still living, but a bad terror reading put the kibosh in the plan for a time. Uh, Xena did not see Pete show up in the cards. Uh, obviously, there was a reason for that that became evident after his uh, experiences with the rubbing alcohol. So with Pete out of the way, the path is now clear for Stanton to run on the ropes of mentalism. Said he'd already picked up some of the tricks from Pete, who had been first rate at it before he uh, was riddled by his addictions. So anyway, as for mentalism, it's a technique by which a stage magician or, other, or otherwise can appear to possess psychic ability of some kind. This is done through a combination of body language, emotional intelligence, subliminal communication, and refined intuition. As such, even stripped of the mysticism, there is some mystery as to how mentalism works, not unlike hypnosis, which is closely related, which I will get to here in a moment. And also, too, there is usually a kind of a elaborate series of cues and so forth as well. Um, usually the mentalist will work with some kind of assistant who will try to pick up on uh, aspects of the marks and uh, will use an elaborate sort of code to pass this information on to the mentalist while he's on the stage. While they're in the process of uh, announcing the guests, asking their questions, that kind of thing. This is something that, you know, Nightmare Alley gets into quite extensively. So there is the element of showmanship, but there is this just kind of strange factor of intuition that is so crucial to being a successful mentalist as well. Stanton has that special something, as I had noted before, an uncanny ability to read people. This combined with the elaborate vocal codes Zena and Pete had previously developed soon leads to Zena's new act far surpassing the success of her old one. And this soon opens the door for Stanton to move beyond mentalism into guruism. I'll deal with that when we get to Del Toro's version. But for now, it's interesting to note how all three versions of Nightmare dismiss any supernatural component to mentalism, even though some individuals are clearly better at it than others. And yet the two principal practitioners of this art in the original two versions are ultimately laid low by addiction, which is widely viewed as a form of possession in many cultures. Kind of end of view ambiguity that makes Nightmare such an interesting watch. The 47 version was a major disappointment for everyone. It starred Tyrone Powell, Stanton, an actor mainly known for his swashbuckling pirate roles. He convinced 20th Century Fox to pay him 50 grand for the rights in 1946 so that he could play against type. It was supposed to establish him as a serious actor, in other words. Instead, it tanked at the box office, despite the high production values and stylish direction from Edmund Golding. 
There's actually some question as to whether Golding uh, met a tragic end as well. He's usually described as dying in 1949, either in the midst of open heart surgery or via suicide. Um, <laughs> it's interesting how there could be some dispute over that. Uh, and where it came from is unknown. Uh, his end is described as coming after a life of, quote, sexual adventurism. Thus, it's possible the two principal authors behind the novel and the original film version met tragic ends after some rather interesting life. Hopefully, Del Toro avoids a similar fate. Um, <laughs> though, maybe not if uh, he continues to make other versions of uh, The Shape of Water. Still, this is probably one of the aspects of the film that made it so appealing in certain circles. Um, yeah, there's always been this kind of a run of bad luck with Nightmare. Um, despite the success of the original novel, uh, it really just sort of ruined Gresham. He was never able to uh, material capitalize on any of his success, and uh, both film versions have tanked. The people involved in the original one uh, did not do great afterwards and had some tragic ends. So we'll see how things play out for the participants in the most recent version. But anyway, the original Nightmare Alley, much like uh, the recent remake, as I just noted, was a box office flop. And the film have, and the original version has gained an audience in recent years to some extent but it never had the kind of dedicated following among film buffs that turns these kinds of forks into the cult classics that we all know and love. I mean, I myself am a huge, huge fan of film noir, and I had never heard of this movie until fairly recently. So it would seem that it was not, I mean, movie buffs who kept The Legend of Nightmare Alley alive all these years, but rather The Church of Satan. Yeah. You heard that right. By all accounts, the Church of Satan or CRS founder Anton LaVey was utterly obsessed with the book and the film. The latter mesmerized him when he saw his, or excuse me, the former mesmerized him when he saw his middle name Stanton, the same as Nightmare's lead, as evidence of his, quote, psychic link to the work. Nicholas Schreck argued that LaVey's, uh, model that uh, Stanton was the model for much of LaVey's uh, later personality. LaVey certainly named his daughter Zena after the tarot reader and attempted to get her to name her son Stanton after the work's protagonist. LaVey maintained an enormous poster from the film that he hung in their kitchen. Upon his death, this was apparently the only thing he left Zena. He was also he would also screen the film for family several times a year, or for his family, I should say, for several times a year in a home projector. Now again, this would have been like in the 60s, 70s. I mean, this kind of time frame when just you know watching movies um at home was kind of a novel thing. So the fact that LaVey had all this equipment just to try to show the film to his family several times a year is really evident of how his dedication to this. I mean, this was not at a time when it was easy to do something like that. LaVey's obsession with Nightmare provides us with some just really interesting insights into one of the most notorious figures in counterculture. As I'm sure many of you are aware, LaVey long claimed what worked as a carny in his early life. And seems to have been one of his many embellishments uh, that LeVay made about his pre-COS days. But taken in the context of Nightmare, he may have been stretching the truth only a bit. 
It's obvious LeBay had an obsession with circuses. What more the Stanton character in both the book and the original film early parallels LeBay's later life. What's more, the Stanton character, after cutting his teeth in the carnival circuit, decides to found his own church. But from the beginning, Stanton never sees it as anything more than a money-making scheme. Using the tricks he learns at the carnival, along with a few tricks from psychoanalysis, Stanton is able to generate enough Fox Supernatural to coin the gullible out of their money. So, more or less... Nightmare Alley seems to have laid the template for LaVey's entire life and career after 1966 or so. He clearly seems to model the second half of his life after the Stanton character dome to these claims of having worked as a carny to his later efforts to establish a religion largely as a Ponzi scheme. And like the Stanton character, he sought to target the most unstable aspects of society for the Church of Satan as well in alcoholics, uh, drug addicts and uh, again the wealthy but those with a subsequent amount of issues <laughs> okay so let's start getting into the del toro version from 2021 del toro arguably pushes the demonic aspect of possession even further than his predecessors i mean his geeks are truly subhuman figures which we which he emphasizes by showing the debasement only previously hinted at He's not content to leave them as men reduced to beasts by booze either. In, the, uh, in this case, the circus manager played by William Defoe in his full-blown Bobby Jangle glory uh, is the one. Oh, in all versions, the circus manager is who is handling the booze here. But uh, in this case, we get Defoe doing it. And uh, yeah, you always know that's going to be an interesting one. His character, though, besides using uh, targeting hardcore drunks as in the previous ones for geekdom and uh, using booze as up things a notch, she laces his hoosh with opiates. That's the secret ingredient that ensures their utter degradation. In this outing, the Stanton figure is played by Bradley Cooper, who's perfectly cast in the role. He has those classically man looks. Doctor makes him much less innocent as well. The initial lore of the carnival for Cooper Stanton is not only the lows of geekdom, but how William Defoe's character is able to exercise his control over them. The Defoe character is the first of a series of more or less polished mentors, increasingly more polished mentors than Stanton learns from, to further refine the methods he later uses to establish his cult following. The Defoe's character's use of booze and opiates represents the crudest forms of social control, which again is fitting for a figure who is overseeing a carnival. Yeah. From there, Stanton levels up to Xena and Pete. The first relationship plays out in similar fashion as in the 47 version, with Stanton and Xena beginning an affair while Stanton presses Pete for information on their codes. The legitimacy of the terror is also emphasized, and one interesting aspect of her makes is the fear that Xena and Pete had for running quote-unquote spook shows. This is when the mentalist starts attempting to communicate with the dead in a serious fashion. Again, while the supernatural is widely dismissed, it's implied in attempts at actual divination can bring tra tragic results. Best to stick to the showmanship, in other words, kids. Another key change Del Toro makes in, is in regards to Pete's death. In the 47 version, Xena was initially open to doing the mentalist act with Stanton until Pete doesn't turn up in the card readings. 
This leads her to cold feet once she overcomes after Pete's death. In the 47 version, his death is also accidental. In fact, as I indicated before, it's possible Pete might even have uh, subtly committed suicide. Stanton, though, is truly unsettled when he realizes that he gave Pete the rubbing alcohol instead of uh, the moonshine. He and Zena begin the act together, you know, afterwards, though, uh, because Zena did not really blame him for any of the things that had happened. And they are having some success. It's uh, only after it's kind of implied that Stanton begins an affair with one of the younger Carney uh, performers, Molly, that things start to go sour in the 47 version. So eventually Stanton and the girl, uh, Molly, are forced into a hasty marriage by the Carneys and they depart uh, at that point. In Del Toro's version, Stanton deliberately kills Pete so that he can acquire the code book for their act. act. Previously, Zena had also given no inclination that she wanted to attempt to do the act with uh, Stanton. And she later realizes that Stanton had deliberately killed Pete for the code book, but she keeps it to herself because Stanton, quote unquote, earned it. But this time, he's also sleeping with Molly, whom he will later marry as well. The code in hand, they depart the uh, circus for bigger and better things. At this point, uh, I want to give, bring some attention to what Del Toro seems to be doing with the underlining history of carnivals in the U.S. Now, this is something I've covered a lot in the, uh, the Patreon section of the farm, so I'm not going to get into it too much here. But suffice to say, much of the first half of the version appears to be set in and around Wisconsin. Wisconsin was the undisputed circus capital of the U.S. in the second half of the 19th century. This is where Barnum Bailey and Ringling Brothers both originated from. So after Stanton departs the carnival, he ends up in Buffalo. New York State also has a close relationship to circuses as well as psychics and new religious movements. Of course, during the Second Great Awakening, Mormonism, Spiritualism, and a host of more arcane sects grew out of the burned-over district there. Much of this fell along the 42nd parallel, which some have dubbed the Psychic Highway. That same parallel runs through Wisconsin's southern half. Many of the same groups followed it out there. So you see a lot of spiritualism, a lot of circuses, uh, psychics, all this kind of stuff throughout the southern part of Wisconsin, along with a lot of surprisingly New England-style towns. It's a fascinating subject, one we're doing a lot with on the Patreon. Anyway, this is uh, some of America's hidden history that's subtly hinted at throughout the film. Another of the occulted origins of both mentalism and psychoanalysis in mesmerism. It becomes an unacknowledged theme throughout all three versions of Nightmare, and thanks to the character of Dr. Lilith Ritter, played by Helen Walker in the original version, and Kate Blanchett in the remake. Obviously, her name is a dead giveaway. Jewish folklore, Lilith was Adam's first wife and supposedly his equal as they were made of the same earth. Eventually parted company, supposedly because she wanted to be on top, or so popular accounts go. Lilith is highly significant in the Kabbalah and many other variations of sex magic. Gresham's Lilith is more than Stanton's equal, to put it mildly. She reportedly tells him in the novel, you will never cut out to run a spook ragged solo. In both films' versions, their uh, first encounter is a dramatic one. 
likely recognizing both the kindred spirit and a form of competition, Lilith appears at one of Stanton's performances once he has relocated to Buffalo. By this time, he's already begun entertaining high society types. Lilith hopes to embarrass him in front of his patrons by exposing his code. But Stanton turns the tables on her, however, with an impressive display of mentalism and leaves Lilith humiliated before the crowd instead. So it's the, uh, the first test of strength in what is effectively a magician's duel between Stanton and Ritter. One uses mentalism, the other psychology, but they're basically drawing from the same source material, hence the lack of differences in the modus operandi. Unfortunately for Stanton, he doesn't realize he's in a duel with a foe who's more than better until it's far too late. Perhaps her initial efforts to discredit him should have been a dead giveaway. Regardless, Stanton walks away intrigued more than anything. He goes to see Lilith and makes two big mistakes. He allows her to start analyzing him on the one hand, and he starts having an affair with her on the other. At the time, it seems like his part it's a partnership made in heaven to Stanton. Lilith records her patients, you see, many of whom were amongst the most affluent of Buffalo society. She has access to their inner secrets. This is exactly the type of material that Stanton could use to take his church to the next level. With this kind of material, he could become a full-blown miracle worker. Lilith is, of course, reluctant, but then agrees to help, or so she uh, plays it off as. Her information gives Sten the starts for a long con targeting one of the most influential and wealthiest members of Buffalo society, a Judge Kimball, an arch skeptic to boot. If Stanton can turn him, the floodgates of cash will fully open. Money is already starting to flow in from this source and others never before. And Stanton gives it to Lilith to hide away for him. At this point, I need to pause for a moment and point out something very interesting concerning this dynamic. In looking at the partnership between Stanton and Lilith, I was immediately reminded of Nexium, which is also based out of New York State. Even though Keith Ranieri received most of the blame for Nexium, he was mostly a small-time grifter until he hooked up with Nancy Salzman, a former nurse trained in neuro-linguistic programming, or NLP. While Ranieri was the public face of the cult, it has long been rumored that Salzman is the one who really ran things. Certainly, Nexium would have never achieved the breach that it did if it were not for her efforts. And this is hardly an isolated incident. It's long been debated if Kishlane Maxwell was actually Epstein's madam or if she was the real power behind the throne. Possibly earlier and compelling instances of this is the Unification Church. An overlooked figure in the early days was a former Swedenborgian named Jungmoon Kim, who was instrumental in spreading Mooney theology in the U.S. and Japan. The great Ed Kaufman, alias Don Diligent, that glorious Mooney defector, believed that Kim was nearly as important in the early days as Sun Ming Moon himself. Another instance of this is the Sibonese Liberation Army. Even though Donald DeFries is widely described as the head of the SLA, Many believe Nancy Lang Perry and Patrice Solstick, both white college-educated women, had as much authority as Diffuse. This appears to be a dynamic in some fundamentalist Mormon sects as well. 
After Urgul LeBaron died, his son Heber theoretically emerged as the head of one of the most militant LeBaron branches left. But it seems it was actually Urgul's former wives who were running things at this point. The same may presently be true of the cult around Warren Jeffs and the FLDS. In the case of Adolfo Costanzo, so-called narco-Satanist cult in Mexico, Sao Alderete, who was schooled in the United States, is also believed to have wielded a considerable amount of power there as well. So this is one of the most interesting dynamics to both early versions of Nightmare. Both the novel and the film foreshadow these strange relationships in many cults and uh, similar kind of setups that later uh, have been linked to some capacity to the U.S. national security state. Combination of a crude but charismatic male figure brought to the next level by a shrewd woman clearly got a lot of mileage in the second half of the 20th century and beyond. But Nexium in particular seems especially adverb del Toro's version of Nightmare. Buffalo location further reinforces that, and in general, this is one of the more knowing aspects of Nightmare. Another interesting dynamic subtly brought into play is the use of blackmail by cults on high-profile members. This is, in fact, one of the most practical reasons why there is so much overlap between the national security state and these kinds of friend circles the potential for blackmail is endless. <laughs> but nightmares end, by nightmares end, one is left with the distinct impression that this was Lois' plan all along. After compiling a considerable degree of damning material, many of the local beeps, she needed a way to use it against them without it tracing back to her practice. Stanton was ideal for this goal, and sure enough, she collects in the end. But... It's eerie the parallel of a psychologist and a mentalist running a blackmail operation based on things later suspected of figures like Colonel Michael Aquino. Of course, Aquino cut his occult teeth in LeVay's Church of Satan before breaking away and establishing his own temple of Set in the 1970s. Now, Aquino was uh, certainly aware of a uh, nightmare due to LeVay's obsession. He even briefly discusses uh, said obsession with the film in his own account of the Church of Satan, while remaining vaguely uh, concerned about his, while being vague on his own thoughts about the movie. But given many of the rumors surrounding Aquino's work for the U.S. intelligence community and said community's links to cults, one can't help but conclude someone in authority saw the value of this film as a blueprint at some point. There are just too many eerie parallels to it in later cults with strange ties. To say nothing of the fact a full-blown war officer known for a flair of the arcane was aware of its role in building up the COS mythos, which raises some interesting possibilities as to why it's being revived now, but more on that in a moment. Inevitably, things begin to fall apart for Stanton. His followers start going off the deep end, leading to high-profile murder-suicide. His scheme to manifest dead lover of a local judge backfires. That would be Judge Kinball. It backfires spectacularly and results in Stanton basically murdering Kimball and, and his bodyguard. This, in turn, uh, necessitates his flight from Buffalo. When he goes to retrieve his earnings from Lilith, well, that's when the, uh, the real depths of his extremes begin to set in 
Lilith has, of course, run him off, and he realizes until it's too late, she is the one who has been running the long con all along. He attempts to kill her as well and narrowly escapes Buffalo Penniless. Stanton becomes one of the many bums riding the rails, and he finally succumbs to his demons. Again, the nightmare possession is typically depicted via addiction. And this is exactly what happens to Stanton. After managing to keep the bottle distance from much of the film, goes all in. As he arrives at the former carnival he had once worked at by films, and he is ready for his geekdom. This in and of itself is one of the most fascinating aspects of Nightmare. Despite its secular trappings, virtually everyone who doesn't respect magical practices ends up possessed, basically. It's especially true of the men. Pete and Stanton are largely viewed these arts as a means of profit and confidence games. And things did not end well for them. The women, be they Xena, Molly, or frankly even Lilith, seem to have a bit more respect for what they're doing, and uh, they at least seem to avoid the fate of Pete and Stanton. An even more interesting aspect of this, as I had uh, alluded to before, is why did Del Toro make this film now? Why, of all the things he could have followed up Water with, it was this film? A period piece remaking an obscure film from 1947 is not exactly a recipe for box office success. Especially given Nightmare's reputation appears to have been far greater among occultists than film buffs to begin with. Del Toro seems to have been keenly aware of this and peppers the film with allusions to some especially arcane history. Hence the Wisconsin location in the early movie, coupled with the latter appearance of Buffalo, indicates he's well aware of the circus history in the United States. The source material is itself aware of how the of how mesmerism of the American circuses and carnivals gradually led to the more respectable practices of mentalism and hypnotism. And this, in turn, contributed greatly to the development of psychoanalysis, which Ritter is a practitioner of. All these techniques are a way of dealing with the subconscious mind, a skill known amongst carnies and occultists from time immoral, immortal. Many moviegoers may view Nightmare as the antithesis to the magical realism of some of Del Toro's earlier works, such as Pan's Labyrinth. Del Toro himself even described the film as having no supernatural elements when it was announced, which is very interesting. The film's characters repeatedly mockably from the supernatural weapon year of secularism is maintained throughout. But as events unfold in the film's final acts, it's clear Stanton has unleashed forces he's ill-prepared to control, as the uh, rising body count is a testament to. His downward spiral is a reflection of this arrogance, that he was above the supernatural common attributed to what he does. But those around him pay the price, and he does too by film's end. So I would argue Nightmare is every bit as much of a magical realism as Del, as Del Toro's early works and arguably even more accurate than some of the earlier ones. Which again begs the question, why? Virtually all of this is going over the heads of the average moviegoer. I mean, did they really want to see a more accurate depiction of how these curses play out in real life? Del Toro claimed the he first discovered Nightmare in 1992 via the Gresham book and not the film. Apparently, a copy was given to him by his longtime collaborator, actor Ron Perlman in 1992, 
this was surely while they were filming Kronos. And I'm I'm sure a lot of you listening to this are aware, but I mean, Bron Perlman um, has collaborated a lot with Del Toro over the years, obviously the Hellboy movies, uh, the second Blade movie, um, and Kronos were major roles that Del Toro, that Perlman had in Del Toro movies. He's also got some supporting roles in Pacific Rim and Nightmare, I think also Crimson Tide and about damn near everything else Del Toro did. So they've uh, well, they've worked together a lot over the years, but Cronus uh, was their first outing together. Well, I guess the uh, it became a very fruitful partnership was established. Now Perlman is an actor most well known for playing on screen monsters, which is another kind of interesting aspect of all of this. And again, his monsters, though, often have hearts of gold as well. His major breakthrough was playing the title character in the uh, cult Beauty and the Beast TV series that ran during the late 1980s with himself and Linda Hamilton. And his most lasting fame came as uh, Hellboy, indicated before, that Del Toro directed. And he's appeared in some other, quite a few other esoteric works as well. Kronos would be one, City of Lost Children would be another. I haven't seen much in Del Toro's background that's a major red flag. Um, obviously, he's Jewish, but there doesn't seem to be any indication that his family had any kind of connection to the Talmud or the, you know, the Kabbalah or anything of that nature. Um, again, certainly it's a bit ridiculous to suggest anyone from a Jewish background would have that sort of uh, knowledge. It is interesting that uh, he came from the University of Minnesota, which is where he graduated. As we'll see in future installments, some very strange things have unfolded in that region. Uh, but this would have been after Perlman's graduation in 73. But needless to say, Perlman has had one of the most colorful careers of uh, any actor in recent decades. And it's interesting, he's put, uh, he was the one who put uh, Del Toro onto Nightmare. Del Toro must have been apparently lived with this work for nearly three decades before the film version was made uh, as well. Again, I'm kind of wondering, I mean, how much Perlman had also pushed him to uh, do the adaptation over the years. But uh, certainly they are an interesting combination. And uh, it's fascinating uh, that this had been something they were both looking at for a very long time before the 2021 version of Nightmare emerged. It's also interesting that Remy came not long after uh, Colonel Michael Aquino shed his mortal coil which may have been in 2019 rather than 2020, as has been widely reported. Now, Nightmare was announced in 2017, while Aquino was still certainly alive. But it is believed that he was terminal by this point and was quite aware of it. Now, I should also point out, Aquino had quite an interesting film as well. I mean, of course, his whole family grew up in the Bay Area, so I mean, that's not surprising. Uh, he had actually written a sequel to the original Star Wars, which was centered around the Sith, obviously, I think all the way back in like the late 70s or something. Um, Aquino, of course, had also appeared in some low-budget horror movies during the uh, the mid-1970s while he was living in Kentucky. So I definitely think he was a film buff, probably even more so than he let on. So that's interesting. And also his status as a psychological warfare officer who spent a lot of time in California raises the possibility that he might have had a more hands-on relationship with Hollywood than has been previously suspected. I mean, certainly made quite a bit of a talk show around in the 1980s and all that good stuff. 
Uh, I mean, I can't help but wonder uh, if the recent version of Nightmare was somehow related to Aquino's looming demise. Certainly his death marked the end of an era in certain occult circles that originally centered around LeBay. And given how crucial Nightmare was to LeBay and his brand for Satanism, it makes me wonder, truly. Aquino would have been aware of the, of, as aware of the significance as anyone. Was there an element of tribute to these circles in making this film now? Was it a, a dying man's request to reintroduce this work to a modern audience? Was it a revelation of method now that the, uh, the players have departed for the, uh, the great carnival gig in the sky? I don't really know, guys, but I mean, I can't help but feel that, um, especially with some of the allusions here to the more mysterious or you know, obscure aspects of this particular history. I mean, you get into things like psychoanalysis, how it's grown out of mesmerism, and mentalism, and especially just the strange relationship with carnivals within some of these locations like Wisconsin and uh, New York. And then finally, the bizarre connection that it has to the Church of Satan, to, I mean, various cults that emerged. It's... Um, you know, this is the kind of stuff that just normal moviegoers have no concept of. And frankly, I mean, this isn't even the kind of shit people who read Vigilant Citizen are going to be able to grasp either. This is very obscure history, the kind of stuff that only probably a handful of individuals in the inside really would have been aware of. Um, but it does seem like Del Toro or, who, or whoever was doing this was also aware of this peculiar history so yeah it uh it raises some very interesting possibilities as to who was uh encouraging del toro to make this or possibly if it had been a long-term passion project of his because he was aware of this history I don't really know, but again, I do find it interesting that it came so close to Aquino's death and um, obviously the profound role that Nightmare Alley had in that whole milieu around Church of Satan, I think is not something that can be discounted in all of this. So yeah, some more mysteries when it comes to the fascinating works of Nightmare Alley, all three versions. So again, guys, if you have not checked them out, I would highly recommend both film versions. I, as you may have guessed, have not actually read the 47 version of the book. I've just kind of done as much as I can online with cliff notes and so forth. But I do highly recommend both film versions. They showcase some rather remarkable hidden history and a very high-end knowledge of magic and the occult that... Um, you know, just does not really get handled in such a fashion with such sophisticated, very sophistication, very often in cinematic representations. Again, these are very supernatural movies. They are very rooted in mysticism. And it's kind of like what makes them so appealing is the fact that they do totally deny this. The kind of magic that plays out in day-to-day -day life that the uh, secular materialist world is content to so its eyes shut towards but which uh, certain individuals even if they do not acknowledge it are aware of and can use to their advantage 
So on that note, I suppose we will sign off for now. As always, guys, I want to thank you so much for listening and all of your support. And with that, I say to you, as always, good night and good luck to you all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki up. Sick and tired of fucking up. Sick and tired of pushing luck. Voodoo blue got juice in it. Swallow what I'm about to spit. Don't got 86 from the copper queen for singing this. I took it to the goat chain. We were ready. My people there, they feeling me. More characters than Stephen King Said I'm just working at the quarry, y'all I ain't in a hurry, y'all Come on, baby, pick me up Out here in my wiki up Stuck down in the stick Hut is hot as hell, I tell you what Put it up and knock it down Moving on that big around Come on, mama, jump down Turn around, do it for me Stick it out, say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump, baby, we gotta go Cause they done let the wolves out They're coming with that heat Mama shooting up the street Mama fight or flight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama no retreat Mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street Tell me that you good for it You want peace go to war for it Say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump baby, we gotta go Can't patrol it off from Berlin to the Great Wall The greatest walls are bound to fall So legalize it, Vato About a Genghis Chapo Come on, legalize it No need to advertise it The weed cures the cancer Everybody even caught or realized If a farmer don't make cash money When we rock that stash, honey Best believe they sooner take it Out your ass, Sunday.